Welcome to another episode of The Drip, the podcast where four academics sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, politics, and culture. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes or when each of us are still in our own homes because we are still trying to keep ourselves or loved ones and even people we don't like safe and healthy. Wear your masks. And apropos of our discussion in the last episode about how history is not a narrative of progress, in the past few weeks we've seen voters, especially in Black communities, wait for hours to exercise their right to vote. So thank you to everyone who's been doing that. And let's make sure to call it what it is, voter suppression and intimidation. Mm-hmm. And also, I have voted. So if y'all can stop calling, texting, emailing, <laughs> snail mailing me about voting, I'd appreciate it. But also, thank you all for voting. Me all too. Right, I voted too. So stop Stop contacting me. Too. <laughs> so I'm Anita Chikantor, the host for the show, and I teach in the Educational Studies Department at Carleton College. Crystal. Hi, I'm Crystal Moten, and I am a public historian working at a museum in Washington, D.C. Hey, Adriana. Hi, I'm Adriana Asta. I'm a professor of English and American Studies at Carleton College. Um, or if you have my wrong number and you keep on texting me, you might think I'm Tiffany from Arizona, but I assure you, I am Adriana from Minnesota and I have voted. Good job, Todd. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and culture, folklore and cultural studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Todd also has voted, so yay. I've, I've already voted, yeah. <laughs> All right, so today we're excited to be talking about Barbara Neely's murder mystery novel, Blanche on the Lamb. Neely wrote this book, The First Mysteries of Four, in her 50s, after a long career of social activism that included heading up a YWCA and leading a community-based correctional program for women in Pennsylvania. She also worked for a nonprofit that served low-income women in need of housing and hosted a local radio show in Boston. And of course, we'll get more into this in the course of our discussion, but her writing was infused by her clear sense of social justice, which comes through loud and clear in Blanche's critique of racism and white supremacy in the course of her solving mysteries. Neely passed away this March, so rest in peace. And spoiler alert, before we dig in, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. As you know, or should know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. And this is a whodunit, so you know we're going to be talking about whodunit. So just FYI. Exactly. And in other words, we're all about spoilers and not about summaries. No summary. No summaries. So I wanted... Sorry, I didn't know that Barbara Neely had died in March. I just need a moment. Who? Why didn't you all tell me? I think Todd actually did mention it. I think I told you. (laughs) Yes, you did. Yeah. You did. Okay. Okay. Nobody listens to me. Nobody (laughs) listens to Todd. Well, we read all the books you tell us to, Todd. That's okay. That's true. I have a lot of power here. There you go. (laughs) Um, Speaking of you, though, um, I feel like when you first talked about this book, like, I don't know, maybe I can't remember, like, exactly what words you used, um, but I thought um, it was set in, like, the 60s because of, like, how you described it. And I feel like when I was reading through it, um, obviously, it's not. It's set in the '80s, but I was kind of curious to ask about, like, I don't know, how did you read this as something? So she wrote it in 1992, and it's like set. I'm guessing like early, not early, or maybe mid to late '90s. Sorry, '80s, '80s, because she mentions like the dot com money, and she mentions like why she moved out of um, New York because like she's worried about her the kids like getting kidnapped because of the Run DMC tape <laughs> that they were like being offered. <laughs> um, so yeah, just curious about what you want to say. And Crystal, I think maybe you were, um, do you want to start us off? I didn't know, I didn't want to start us off. I was just going to say um, in regards to um, Barbara Neely's passing, um, may she rest in power, that on the website is noted. Even on our website, See? it's new. Okay, I missed yeah. a lot. Is all, 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 all we're saying is that I don't listen well enough. And I or you would be a terrible detective, unlike Blanche. So. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so Anita, what is, what, Anita yes. I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to answer Thank your question. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Todd. But before I do that, I want to point out <laughs> to the listeners something that they can't see, which is that Crystal just put up the most kick-ass background on Zoom, uh, which has I voted... Uh, stickers and and confetti and everything in the background it's amazing 
and we all had giant smiles on our faces when it just came up about, <laughs> about five yeah. seconds ago. Okay, now to answer your <laughs> Now question. to my question. <laughs> um, whenever, yeah, whenever I first read this novel and then whenever I, I teach it, um, yeah, we, you know, I definitely think of it as being a contemporary set novel. And um, the notion that, you know, that, uh, that Blanche is a, is a domestic doesn't to me seem to be, you know, sort of out of, uh, out of uh, the situation, the uh, not a possibility. Um, there are uh, a lot of people who have domestics. Uh, there are a lot of black women and women of color who work as domestics even today. And so, and this book is set in the South. And so that kind of, I think maybe you're referring a little bit to the kind of relationship that uh, yeah. that is depicted between um, the the family, what are, what are their names? Uh, I wrote down everyone's name, uh, Everett and Grace mm -hmm. and uh, Blanche, you know, that kind of um, the way that they talk to her. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of harkens back to uh, another time in terms of what we're no what we're used to be seeing represented or reading in, in books. But I think it's I, I think it's probably pretty accurate um, for a particular time and place and and maybe even now. I mean, I'll just say this and then I'll I'll, I'll leave it to y'all just say what you think. But um, I think the. <laughs> The, the job of, you know, housekeeping, domestic work, that sort of thing is, is always sort of tinged by that kind of power uh, differential um, in which at the very least, the people who are employing someone to take care of their household want to not see that labor being done. You know what I'm saying? Like at the very least, it's a, it's a kind of invisible kind of labor that the, it's, it's it's best when you sort of go in and come back and it's all finished, right? Um, but at, at the at at its worst, it's like it's very visible. The person is there, but it, they're not like a person. They're not your friend. I mean, there's a whole bunch of that that she talks about uh, in the novel that Blanche refers to. Like, you have to sort of remember if a person treats you nice, that doesn't mean that they think you're their friend. Right. Someone talks to you, they're not necessarily telling you the truth. Um, they don't necessarily think of you as their equal, that sort of thing. So I think she's really trying to um, to uh, uh, to show us that in in the novel, and I think it comes across really really effectively. Yeah, I also didn't really question the the timing, right? The the period it was set in, but I always appreciate it, um, Anita, when you bring up these questions because then it makes me think a little bit more about like why. I accepted it. And look, it's, I didn't grow up in the South, right? I didn't grow up in um, a community where there were domestics. So like, you know, um, part of this, I think, was for me about the internal logic of the story um, and Blanche's own voice, uh, which I think is like one of the, the really big achievements of Neely here, which is that Blanche's um, narration is just absolutely compelling and funny and um, and powerful, right? Like in this critique that she, this structural critique that she consistently has of the world around her. But really early on in the novel, there's a point where she's talking about um, like that she's chosen domestic work, um, that she's done other kinds of work and that this has just turned out to be both the most effective and easiest way for her to make money given her strengths. And like, as for some reason, like that clicked for me as a kind of useful way to think about like what her position was. And, and then, and then it explained too like why she could have such like a vivid um, critique of the world around her. Yeah, and so I find that part, oh, sorry, go ahead, Crystal. I'll try to find that part. In terms of the, the timing, in terms of the, the kind of the historical era this represents, I mean, someone could pick up this book in 2020 and think, oh, you know, this represents, uh, you know, a fictionalized story you know, of um, black, a Black woman's work in a bygone era, right? Um, especially thinking that, you know, this is set in the 1980s and most people think of Black women working as domestic says, you know, earlier in the 20th century, late 19th century, um, what have you. Um, but what I find kind of most interesting about this is the fact that, you know, Black women were still predominating in service industries, particularly in personal and domestic service, up into the mid part of the 20th century. And so meaning like 50% of uh, black women in the labor force were laboring in domestic and personal mm. industries. Right? Um, and so given that fact and that knowledge, 
um, putting um, Blanche and this story into um, a narrative of Black women's work and what it what are the possibilities. But then also thinking about um, the fact that we typically think of Black women in laboring as domestics in the South, moving North to get away from domestic and, and personal labor, but then also finding that that's the same type of work they're encountering um, outside of the South. And so with Blanche's decision to number one, remain in domestic and personal um, service, even when she decides that she's going to move, into, move to Boston, right? She's not going to change her labor industry. Right. She's still going to in the same industry. And so it, it makes us think about kind of, you know, what are what are the choices that Black women worker? Of course, the, the question is always what are Black, what, what kind of opportunities are being withheld from Black working women? But you can also ask the question, well, what are they choosing to do for themselves? Mm-hmm. And what I love about this book is that we get a lot of branches, interior thoughts and rationales and reasonings, which we don't always get when we read historical studies on Black women's work. We always get, you know, Black women were fleeing domestic service because of this ill treatment, and I don't want to erase any of that. But um, this fictionalized account kind of makes us think a bit deeper about what this work actually was and what it also allowed Black women to do within it. Can I, I just you? find the paragraph? Can I read oh, that? Just because I yeah, think it ahead. gets at like some of that. So it's uh, 76. Yeah. Um, and so she's like upstairs, like cleaning. And then she, uh, so she hears like Grace and, um, well, as we find out later, the fake Emmeline, like having a conversation. And so she says, I should have done the old lady's room first. Blanche chided herself. Might have had a right. Uh, ringside seat for the shouting match more likely it would have been postponed and so she kind of goes on and then she says um <laughs> right um pursuing with the desire to knock and try to conquer her natural inclination to defy the voice of authority it was one of the reasons she had not lasted in the waitressing telephone sales clerking and typing jobs she had tried over the years she always returned to domestic work for all the Chatelaine fantasies of some of the women for whom she worked she really was her own boss and her clients knew it she was the expert. She ordered her employer's lives and not the other way around. She told them when they had to be out of the way, when she could work and when she couldn't. Or at least that was the way uh, it was most of the time. Yeah. So I sort of appreciated her sort of, right? Like Crystal was saying, it wasn't just that she sort of chose it, but she chose it for these particular reasons because in some ways she did have a bit more control, right? Over yeah. her like labor and conditions. Yeah, that's all I was going to add. Just um, one, w- number one, and you just hit on it in that in that excerpt, that she, even though in this particular instance, she's working for a service or a company, um, right. most of the time she's, she's uh, getting clients herself. She's self-employed. And right. so that adds mm-hmm. another sort of dimension of kind of, you know, freedom and authority, self-authority. And then just to uh, piggyback on another thing Crystal said is, that the book does not um, uh, let us escape from the, you know, I think Christina Sharp calls it a sort of monstrous, monstrous intimacy of domestic mm-hmm. work. We have we have several sort of uh, where she thinks back about something that's happened to her in her past that alludes to the danger, the the threat of of working as a black woman in a white domestic space. Yeah, I actually was going to um, mention that, like that that we see her drawing boundaries around the relationships with the different members of this family, um, and I mean even before she understands the kind of. Um, evil mystery that's like underfoot, right? So the first time that she meets uh, Mumfield, right, is the name? Mm-hmm. Who is the one of the cousins um, and who turns out to have a variation of Down syndrome, but she doesn't realize that at first. And she talks about how she actually feels like, re- like she can tell he's coming in the door before he comes in the door. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how that usually only happens with like family and her dearest friends. And she's really off put by the fact that she seems to have this connection to him because she works so hard to make sure that she doesn't have that sort of social um, intimacy with the people she's laboring for. Right. She calls yeah. the, the, that uh, closeness, isn't that what she calls Darkie's disease? That she's always trying yes. to yeah. Can from we... suffering from Darkie's disease. Right. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk more about her relationship to him, though? Because I thought it was yeah. interesting, right? The way in which mm-hmm. she tries to kind of figure out her connection to him. And I was kind of curious what we thought about that in terms of 
right? It's like a person with a dis disability and it's or just a difference, right? And so I was sort of curious what people made of like how Neely kind of thinks through their relationship. This is like maybe one of the parts of the novel that I've thought about a, a lot and wondered how it stands up over time mm -hmm. and the way that she talks about uh, a disabled person or a way dis, uh, you know a differently able person is is represented in the in the novel and uh, of course we are getting this through uh, Blanche's you know observation of him through her mm -hmm. point of view so that's one kind of filter that we have um, she as you you say I mean I think she's um, reluctant to find herself connected to him mainly because he's white you know and that's mm -hmm. that's the barrier right yeah. it's I think she finds out very quickly that um, his, I think it's mosaicism, is that what the yes, what thank condition you. is called? That, mm -hmm. that there's some way that that actually connects her to him because he has some sort of um, further insight or ability to see or sensitivity to what's going on. He sees differently or he senses differently, I think. And, I Can I actually yeah, I would switch it around, right? Like I think by the end of the novel and... Um, she says this really directly, I think, in the last few pages, and I have the mm -hmm. Kindle version, so I'm not going to try and give you guys the page. Mm -hmm. um, but she says, um, Mumfield is like her in the way that they are seen by the world around them. Yes, I totally agree with that. Right. So it's not it's just not about the, that, that, that he is special, right, in the way that he can see things, but also that they are placed in a similar category. Absolutely. So I think they both share those things, right? Yeah. So she, I think she notices first his sort of sensitivity that she also feels she has. But you're right. Yeah, absolutely. That they're both, um, in a way, they're both kind of invisible. They both are... Yes, um, like dismissed. Uh, dismissed, mm -hmm. right? Like under Underappreciated or under... What's the word for like what Grace does not think that Blanche is going to figure stuff out? What is that? Yeah. What's the word for that? I totally forgot. Underestimate? Underestimated. underestimated. Thank yes. you. <laughs> that is the word. They're totally underestimated. And yeah. she underestimates him too, right? Because there's a whole thing where he knows that there's been a switch okay. with Aunt Emmeline from mm -hmm. the very beginning. Mm -hmm. and I she did not see that coming. Yeah. And he yeah. tries to tell. And we as readers overlook it too, right? Like, yeah. Because we're, we're being uh, told you know, about what's happening through Blanche's point of view. And he tells her, he tries to tell her and she doesn't pay attention to it because it doesn't fit the, the narrative that she's putting together in her head. And and I think, you know, this is one of the things that I like about the book too, is that um, Blanche is a really great detective, but like a lot of great detectives, actually, I think detectives that sort of have developed over the years um, with time, they overlook things. Um, they think that they have the, the the solution to the problem, but they've overlooked one kind of thing. And that's kind of what gives the, you know, the the suspense and the surprise and everything in the, in the narrative. It's not like, uh, you know, um, who's the most famous detective? Of Eric all? Poirot? Sherlock not Holmes? Poir Sherlock Holmes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that answer was definitely a literature, literature professor's answer. Oh, who's come on, you guys who's the most famous detective of all? Poirot? <laughs> come on, <laughs> y'all. No, I, I, I hear you. I am here no, for, it's the, Sherlock Holmes. I am it's here Sherlock. for the genealogy of detective fiction. All right, Poirot is before Sherlock Holmes, but it's Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but like uh, Sherlock Holmes, like that kind of the, the classical yeah. detective, right? Sherlock Holmes and Poirot is like that. They know what's happened long before anybody else knows what's happened. Part of the the narrative is like how they're teasing or playing with other people who don't quite get it yet, right? Like Watson mm -hmm. doesn't know what the hell's going on until <laughs> late in the situation, but but he he's had the 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 answer the whole time. But the, these sort of uh, more contemporary detectives make mistakes. They're less like sort of mental superheroes or something like that. And so, but she's really good. She she notices so many things she has a bead on she knows something's wrong for sure mm -hmm. right because she has very to soon yeah. yeah she notices that very soon but she even she makes um assumptions about the characters right um we well, got but grace and she she like her thing about grace is i mean she's sort of like being sexist isn't she like a woman would never be a murderer like she 
but she is right. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, no, no, that's great. I, I was going to say, like, I think part of it is that she's an accidental detective in this yeah. first novel, yeah. right? In this first one, it's the story of, well, I got put into the situation. I've got to stay in the situation. I've got to survive, mm-hmm. right? We have um, her own story, which uh, about like kind of fleeing the courthouse without paying for her bounced checks or something like that. Right. Like, yeah. so she is, they gave her the, time. They gave her 30 days. <laughs> she's a slammer. <laughs> she's on the <laughs> lamb on the lamb, as the title says. And what that means is like the, the, you know, the choices she makes are also, and I, I think, you know, Neely does this really beautifully, right. Are structured by like what her alternatives can be and her alternatives are really constricted. And so she has to become a detective in order to survive in the space that she right. just has to stay in long enough to get that income tax refund check. Right. I want to come but, back to the sexist remark, but can I just read another passage where I feel like I thought it was really powerful because she's talking about that mom's field still, right? And this notion and to, it's towards the end and 161. Um, and she says, and I think this is when, oh no, this is before, she, uh, this is before everything kind of plays out with Grace, but anyway. For all his specialness and their seeming connectedness, Mumsfield was still a white man. She didn't want to shower concern on someone whose ancestors had most likely bought and sold her ancestors as though they were shoes or machines. Right. Would she always find some reason, mental challenge, blindness, shooter incompetence, to nurture the people who had been raised to believe that she had no other purpose in life than to be their girl? Had the slavers stamped mammyism into her genes when they raped her great-grandmothers? If they had, she was determined to prove the power of will over blood. I thought that was like, whoa. And I think it's like one of those passages where I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I was, I was, I didn't think that that's where it would go, but I was just like, wow, like that's, that's a lot of history and that's a lot of, um, well, that's it. That's power packed into like a paragraph. I think that's one of those moments that you, you only get in Barbara Neely where she's yeah. really bringing like the, um, that's activist Barbara Neely. You know, trying to sort of educate you about the history of, you know, Black people in this country and the relationship between Blackness and whiteness and really um, weaving it really seamlessly into the novel. You know, I don't I mean, this is the I think that's what's, you know, so great about the novel is because of the setup, because of the premise, she's able to do all of this stuff. And it doesn't seem like, oh, this is just a political, you know, this is not art artistic. You know, it's this is really it actually really is a novel with the political point of view mm-hmm. um, that but that doesn't um, overshadow the story it doesn't get in the way of the story and it like actually really tied yeah. together yeah because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the other one if it's okay to read <laughs> um, 132 right so she's talking about when she finds out about Nate um, and she says and this is kind of the end of 132 a thick hot rage began to roil in her stomach at the thought of all the deaths uh, thought of all thought of the debts of all the poor needs and yes, blanches at the hands of the privileged white Everett's of the world. Nowadays, people want to tell you class didn't exist and color didn't matter anymore. Look at Miss America and the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. But Miss America and mm-hmm. the chairman were no more black people than Mother Teresa was, was white people. Men like Nate and women like her were the people, the folks, the mud from which the rest were made. It was their hands and blood and sweat that built everything from the North Carolina governor's mansion to the first stoplight. They ought to have been appreciated for being the waddle, waddle that held the walls together. Instead, they were expendable, interchangeable, rarely missed, hardly regarded, easily forgotten. Not this time. And I just, I thought that was like an amazing paragraph because she's, you know, mm-hmm. she just throws in there, right? It's like from the Rokala's governor's mansion to the first stoplight, right? Like, mm-hmm. do people know that the first stoplight was invented by a Black inventor, right? It's just like, I thought that was really, um, yeah, that's really great. Yeah. And it's also really significant because um, when the sheriff is killed, um, you know, this is something that, of course, she notices and becomes much more wary of the people in her household. She's pretty sure that Everett did it. Um, but it's only when Nate dies that it becomes a personal, like, Im- important thing for her to pursue. Because she's actually kind of relieved the sheriff died, given exactly right, <laughs> right given her own like. Okay, can I ask a plot question? Yes. So why oh, did the one. sheriff? Why was the sheriff killed by Grace? I was a little confused because I knew why. Like she thought Everett oh, was going to kill. Um, <laughs> this is just like a stupid. Like, a, I didn't understand. What exactly I totally happened. forgot. I, I, you remember? <laughs> is this connected to my question, which was okay? The thing mm-hmm. that like jumped out, and I was like what just happened was when we discover that the person who was 
being the sit-in for Emmeline, for, for Aunt Emmeline, was mm -hmm. actually like Emmeline's half-sister half sister, yeah. who is also Black. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But who apparently appeared white and could pass. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, sorry, go ahead, Crystal. I was going to say, but Nate knew that she was mm -hmm. a Black woman passing or... Eight. Right, and Blanche and, didn't. And yeah. did, oh no, you know why the sheriff died? Now I remember, because it wasn't why? this. Because um, Mumfield went to the sheriff and, and told him about Emmeline. That's what it was. Oh, okay. That's okay. what it was. Okay. And also because Grace is just killing everybody. Well, that's... <laughs> I mean, to say though, like going back to like why she, she is like Grace, like I don't think it was sexism. I think that Grace is a psychopath who's able to like. Well, no, but I, like, I just, but I think like that for um for Blanche at first she assumes it's the man because you know the man would be the one that you would have he's he's sleeping around on her again. Like she she's starting to feel a little bit of connection to Grace because Grace is this sympathetic woman. Um, she's this put upon wife. She's is playing the role. You're absolutely right. right. She's playing it like a fiddle. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Blanche is falling into it, and all the time she's sort of trying to resist it and push back against it because it's right, her whole right, thing right. about not wanting to be pulled into this these white people's uh, relationships, their family, their problems, or any kind of like relationship that she knows is not really real. So she knows that, but she doesn't. She doesn't know exactly how not real That's it is, true. right? You know. So I think. I, I just always find that interesting. I never suspected it was Grace until the very yeah. end. And I think also that's because of my own sort of assumption that, um, you know, that, uh, that it would be, <laughs> it would be a villain, right? I mean. I, I mean, but Grace played her hand very well. Yeah. She yeah. wore Everett's like coat that. when she went out like to kill mm -hmm. it, right? Like she had mm -hmm. that down. Mm -hmm. She um, made sure those handcuffs were in Everett's things. Mm -hmm. Um, True. you know, uh, Blanche has that moment when she finally finds out, um, Blanche felt her face flush with embarrassment, despite her contention that she had more respect for Mumsfield than his own people. She too had fallen into the trap of not really listening to what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And so in fact, it's, I think it's less that I'm just trying this out, that she's sexist, right? That she didn't consider grace, but that she actually wasn't listening to Mumsfield early enough in the novel to kind of put the clues together. Like we knew that little cousin died in the pond mysteriously. Who else was there? Grace. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, but we don't yeah, put the- Hold on, Chris. Yeah, okay. go ahead, Crystal. I'm not gonna say anything dramatic, but I think the other thing about Grace is that um, she set up in the story is having all of this money and being relatively secure that she doesn't, I, I didn't think she would need to go on killing a murder sprees because mm. she's a secure one, right? But then at the end, we find out that she doesn't have access to her money unless she marries and she chooses Everett because basically, you know, she can, she can you know, control him basically, right? Yeah. And so the way that the Grace character is set up, she's just not set up in the in in the in the way that for me, I didn't expect that she was the mastermind behind right. all of it. Really, so. We we end up at the end with more respect for Grace, but more <laughs> of Grace. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that last scene where she's like running, I was like, oh my god, this turned into just like horror. Right. <laughs> like what's it's happening? amazing. <laughs> it's the most amazing boss fight ever. It's, yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and, when Blanche punches her at the yes. beginning, I'm like, whoa! <laughs> and then when she comes with the stick and like, just lays her out, that's like my favorite, that's my favorite moment in any book. I mean, I just, I remember reading that for the first time still, like the feeling of like, whoa, just feeling amazing. You're and, like, I could totally see this as a movie and we'd all be like cheering, you know? Yeah. Um, but a quick thought about, oh, sorry, Terms of, in terms of a movie, I was thinking, oh, you know, Blanche knocks out Grace. She's going to, like, go to jail. But then it's like it's kind of like a get-out scenario where, you know, yes. knocks out Grace and, you know, Grace is taking where she needs to be. And that's somewhere. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great ending in that she yes. actually, she voices that fear, right? She's like, uh-oh. Yeah. Like, I thought Archibald had this letter and, like, it would basically right. say anything and prove stuff and I wouldn't have to deal with this. 
and he doesn't. And yet she still manages to, to sit down and convince him and like have him call the right places and unfortunately find Emmeline's body, right? Like that's clearly part of it, even though that's out of the scene for us. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, I just want to make a quick point about Todd's point about like how she was finding like sympathy or empathy with um, Grace, right? And I think that's like one of the things that is kind of beautiful about Blanche, right? She has to kind of find herself. She has to like find her own like, natural human empathy and sympathy that we all should have for each other, right? And there's these ways in which like racism and sexism and all these things kind of get in the way of like our like our human emotions. I really like, so I think I like appreciated that where she's like, yeah, like she does feel this connection to Grace as like a woman, right? As like a woman mm-hmm. who's dealt with like terrible men, right? And so like there's points when she sort of says, right? Like, yes, it's like a racial difference, but also we're women. So I do right. think that it's like in some ways I find that really admirable about her, right? That that's like... um, One of my favorite lines in that vein, Anita, is the... um, uh, When she's like, she's actually kind of like trying to get Grace to talk to her, right? So it's partly very intentional. But she says, she gave Grace a version of that pained, puzzled, and indignant look, which is part of all women's male vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 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 Blaine. Right? (laughs) So I I guess... Oh, Speaking of movies, we sort of were talking before the uh, sort of uh, we started recording as kind of Crystal brought up kind of thinking about Black Domestic is obviously the most, right, unfortunately popular movie and sort of book of the past few years has been The Help and sort of thinking about maybe why, right, like that kind of depiction of like Black Domestics has been so popular. And I know that Todd and Adriana had some things to say about the difference in genre. Um, so I wonder if you two wanted to talk about that. And before, I bet we'll get to Crystal first and then to Todd and Adriana. And, and, and so I wanted to just say first, and I think um, Todd and Adriana following up about kind of genre is gonna be good because when um, I was thinking about Blanche on the Lamb, immediately the help, the book came to mind. I actually wasn't thinking about the film. Mm. I was thinking, oh, there's a fictionalized account of black women um, working in domestic labor. Why is why is if 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 Barbara Neely published this in the 1990s, mm-hmm. why don't we know about this? Um, and why is that the help that account more well known? And I, and I have some thoughts about that. But my um, I was thinking about it as more so as this is a book about Black women domestic workers, and we already have not really thinking about genre, um, but I think the discussion about genre will help with that. But just thinking about the subject of the of the story, if we already have, because the help was billed as, oh, this book that is, you know, about, you know, black domestic, uh, black women in domestic work. And it's like the first of its kind, right? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's this, this new type of story that, a fictional story. And I'm just like, no, it's not. Barbara Neely wrote about black women <laughs> with, with you know black women as domestics as the subjects in the 1990s and so I was just wondering like even if the help became popular why then did this book not get back in the spotlight because of it so that was mm. one. I mean I, I bet Todd has much more specific kind of like um uh, Barbara Neely kind of information about that just thinking about kind of like her role in literary studies um, but, but the first thing I want to say is actually like the, the what you just said, um, Crystal made me think about uh, American Dirt, the terrible uh, novel about, you know, border crossing that came out this last year um, mm-hmm. and that had all of the money of the industry, book publishing industry behind it, written mm-hmm. by a white woman who then tried to kind of navigate some kind of Latina identity for herself, but really was coming from a place of, of privilege and whiteness. Um, and, um, and, you know, like how many novels there are about border crossing and migration um, and uh, those challenges in Latinx literature, but without that kind of funding and push behind it, right? And I think like we very much see the same thing happening here where the help um, it is black domestic help for a white gaze from a white gaze mm-hmm. um, and very much just kind of like, hey, white people like, you know, this this will give you some sense of what's going on and make you feel good even about right. because this is all in the past. Right. 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 And it's like, it, you know, like there's a really great white woman in this novel who like, <laughs> you know, made sure to get these voices out because who knows what would have happened without her. 
And what's like really amazing about, um, you know, Blanche on the Lamb is like, she doesn't need white people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And in fact, like, I, you know, like this is a, a, I want to talk more about gossip a little bit later, you know, but I mean, I think it's really fascinating how she has these, like she has the information of the household and she's like got her own detective things she's figuring out, but she also has her sources. She's got people she's calling. She's Miss got Minnie, Miss, baby. Miss yeah. Minnie. Oh my Lord. Knows everything. Yeah. So like that, that for me is I, a big thing. Um, no, I, I think what I totally agree with what you said. That is a, an amazing way to put it. And um, I think in addition to that, um, even this book, being genre fiction, um, you know. So, I mean, I'm thinking about in the uh, the 80s and 90s in terms of the popularity of novels written by African American authors in the sort of larger literary um, audience or literary world. There's there's still not that many at that time. Like, it's pretty difficult for a black author. I mean, you know, you, you have something like Gloria Naylor. Morrison. Right, you have a handful. Um, you have a handful. You have. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna be able to come up with the names because of my brain being uh, a problem. Um, but you know, like <laughs> beloved. You know, like you've got you've got a handful of books. Almost never more than one at once. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, there's Alice Walker. You know, there's you know. Right. So there's there's usually there's like a celebrated black female author um, at once, maybe a couple in a year, but not like there is now. I mean, there's really been this kind of resurgence. So uh, all this is to say that uh, Barbara Neely gains a lot of, of recognition within the mystery novel or the, uh, the crime novel kind of like community of writers. She wins a lot of awards, hmm. but they're specific to that sort of genre, genre. of mm-hmm. writing. And in fact, her books go out of, out of print a couple of different times um, the, the only reason you can get these now is because they were brought back into print by a small press. Um, I think it's called Brash Books. And uh, it's a very small press and they only do um, mystery novels, that sort of stuff, detective novels kind of stuff. So a lot of people just didn't know about this book and maybe they would have wanted to make a film about it. You know, actually, I think we're now we would want to make a film about it as opposed to like in 1992 a film based on this book is not what film uh, uh, executives would have thought would make money. You know? Oh Lord, no. They yeah. would have never even considered something like this, right? Um, and it, 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 it's from a black person's point of view. It's from a, 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 a lower class of working person's point of view. It's very critical of whiteness and, mm-hmm. and white people. And in mm-hmm. fact, refuses sort of whiteness as any kind of a like positive, Sort of thing. The only, as you were, as you were saying, Adriana, like the only white person in the, in the book, really, who she thinks of in a positive way is Mumsfield, and he's sort of like his whiteness is sort of like um, disrupted by his um, mm-hmm. by by his uh, uh, differently different ability, I suppose you might say, right? Mm-hmm. So he, she, I think she sort of thinks of him in the end. Well, he really is white. But along the way, she sort of thinks like he's not like other white people because he doesn't yeah. see me the way that other white people see me, which is that he really sees me. <laughs> um, right. right. She worries whether right. that's yes. true or not, but but I think right. she thinks he really does see me. But I was also thinking about in some ways, right, sort of the distance between him and maybe kind of what Audre Lorde calls like the mythical norm, right, which mm-hmm. is like white, able-bodied, male, mm-hmm. right, upper class. So in some ways, like his, there's like some a little bit of distance at least between him and that mythical norm. And obviously her distance is like much, mm-hmm. much bigger. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and then um, to, can I quickly, you know, I'll try to be quick and you guys can shut me up, go back to that like bigger question uh, that Anita brought up. And I love the way you do that. And you're like, genre, can we talk about <laughs> genre? Yeah. Um, I feel like that's how literary professors say it. So I'm going to teach you all. <laughs> Let us talk about Sandra and Hercule Poirot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, When we think about detective fiction in the kind of like larger landscape of literary fiction, um, you know, and I've said, I said this before, and and I think it's, it's hard to underestimate like how, um, how much in its own little corner it is Mm. and how very little it gets out to the mainstream population. And, and then that goes the other way, which is the people who love mysteries and read fully in the mystery genre, like, um, tend to know that they are kind of like 
in, you know, like they're geeks of that particular sort, right? In the same Mm -hmm. way that science fiction fantasy has had that place. I do think those lines have been disrupted in recent years, Mm -hmm. right? So that some of the fiction that we used to think of as genre fiction, and that's what Todd said a few minutes ago, right? Like, um, and genre fiction was never considered good writing right, or right. literary mm-hmm. writing. Right. Um, but but that's been punctured, that belief. And I think there's like more research. And that also means that there's more reading now being done by people right across the spectrum in those well, fields. Yeah, I, I think uh, you're Chris, right. And it's taken, uh, I'm sorry, you, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, if Crystal wanted to jump in, but go ahead, oh, I think it's, it's taken um, people being sort of finding that um, those genres and sort of the popularity of them sort of pushing them into the mainstream, right? So if you think about something like um, what's sometimes called uh, ghetto lit or urban lit, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it first started, again, was considered like bad writing. You wouldn't go into an African-American literature course in, mm. you know, in the 90s or early uh, uh, 21st century, mm. and read a, a book by someone who's who, who would be considered, you know, um, uh, urban lit, but now you might, now you might, um, because those books have, we've sort of, um, sort of, uh, dismantled or sort of like compressed that kind of barrier between canonical mm. literature that's can, or literary, the literary kind of, of writing and like popular genre writing. So mm-hmm. they're starting to sort of pierce each other so that you, people start to recognize that like this book, Blanche on the Lamb, is really good. This is quality writing. This is mm-hmm, not just mm-hmm. like somebody churning out a book, you know, just to for sales or something like it's not pulp necessarily. You know, it's it's not all those things. It, yes. it has some elements of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, like if you read if you read Walter Mosley, Walter Mosley is a great, great He's writer. Great writer. But not everybody recognizes the greatness of Walter Mosley. And the same thing is true of him. Like you might not read Walter Mosley in a in a sort of course that's a canonical literature course. But once you start to read him, you start to think like Oh yeah, this is really really good, and I think the same thing about someone like Attica Locke, who writes uh, mystery novels, um, who writes for TV a lot. I was gonna say yeah. I, yeah, yeah, she's she's more known as a TV writer, mm-hmm. but she writes some really really great novels. Mm-hmm. I think she's had two or three um, that I really really like. Um, but you have to read them. They you, you know you're not gonna see them. They're not gonna win the Pulitzer. You're not gonna win the National Book Award or whatever. You know you you have to sort of find them. And then they get pushed into the sort of um, mainstream by their popularity from people who find them and love them. I do want to make sure Crystal jumped in because I feel like she had something to say way before all of this. Yeah. So go ahead, Crystal. And I was just going to say that um, what I did, what I haven't said is that I uh, personally, I feel bad for not knowing about this book. And um, especially because when I was in undergrad, I took more literature classes and history classes. I wasn't mm-hmm. really a historian until graduate school. And so for this book to even exist and me not know about it, it kind of makes me sad. But then the other thing is that when The Help came out, the Association of Black Women Historians uh, came out with this open statement. Right? I remember that. Like, criticizing The Help. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I'm also thinking about like our responsibility as historians mm. who Black women and, and Black women's experiences. Like that would have been a moment to say, and this, there's this other set of books mm. Um, a black woman who, you know, that that, that could have been mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think we also, as historians who focus on black women, we miss an opportunity there too. So I'm just like feeling personally and professionally bad for like, you know, not knowing about this work. But you mm-hmm. shouldn't feel bad, Crystal, because I didn't know about this book. I, I don't, that's part of my point is that this book wouldn't right. have been taught. Um, right. I, I, only know about this book because I was putting together a course on black on the black mystery novel and I found it. You know? And yeah, I was so you were like I looking at the genre specifically. Yeah, yeah I was looking mm-hmm. for uh, you know mystery novels written by by black people, and I found this mm-hmm. book and I read it and I was like, this book is amazing. And you know, not every book that I found in doing my research for that class was amazing, but this one was, you know. And so I re- I read another one, you know. <laughs> And so, I mean, that's kind of what happens, I think, when when I've been, you know, as a, I teach a lot, I when people ask me like, what is what is your specialty area? One of sometimes I say mid-century genre fiction. I wasn't trained in that, but I really like it, and I, I love to to read those books and to write about them and to teach them. So a lot of it is like I'm sort of searching for these books, and I find these books, and it's like, oh my god, you know, like 
you know, this particular person is really amazing in this particular genre, you know? So I think you shouldn't feel bad, bad about it because you would never, they wouldn't have that in a class. It wouldn't have been in a literature class. Yeah. So maybe last point about genre, and we can move on to maybe gossip as our last uh, thing to wrap up. So can I underline earlier, Todd talked about it as it's not pulp. It's not a novel that's been like written to fulfill a kind of like, uh, you know, goal of like, you know, a certain number of novels a year. Like Sue Crafton. <laughs> and, and like what's, but, but the thing is like, I want us to be really careful about like the way that we use those terms, right? right. Because that's what paints the whole genre as something mm -hmm. that's not worthy that we don't need to look at or think right. about. And I know Todd, that you're just using it as a kind of, like historically, right. that's certainly the, the things that shaped mystery or romance or um, like historical, what, what are the, like the Western, right? Like those were all pulp because they were like, you know, like these things that were fed like to the population layer. really quickly yeah. and they were written quickly. Um, but, but there's this kind of larger thing that we're trying to do. I think, you know, those of us who work in genre fiction in the contemporary period, which is recognize that like, you know, sure there's like, literature that's more interesting to us that's doing things that are more interesting and stuff that's doing things that are less interesting but it's all interesting as a sort of like um a field that has a kind of purpose and meaning mm. for the readers that consume it and yeah. that need it in particular ways can, um, that's fair. can i just well, I, have to say, oh. well, I just want to say I, I think this is really super important and I, I and you are not saying this but i want to just um, um emphasize that i'm not saying that that uh, pulp or other kinds of sort of like um, literary categories or genres which have been considered sort of low brow mm -hmm. don't have value because I, I think they do. And I think what, maybe the point I'm trying to make is that audiences recognize that value. I mean, do you guys know who the best-selling black author of all time is? This is a totally unfair question, but- Crystal does. Crystal does. Terry McMillan. Terry it is, McMillan. It's not Terry McMillan, <laughs> but that's a good guess. That is it's actually guess. Donald Goins um, is the best-selling and he wrote crime novels about pimps and, and hoes and everything. Okay. And his, from this, uh, uh, there's a publisher in LA called Holloway house. They sold more books by him than any other black author in history. Hmm. It, it might not be true today. This is a, 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 a statistic that from a few years ago, but this is all to say somebody was buying those books, you know, right. And when we used to have like big bookstores, you know, like Barnes and Noble or whatever, if you went into the Barnes and Noble uh, 10 years ago, there was always a shelf that was urban lit with a bunch of authors that would never be and, taught and the, in a literature course, right? Like the flip side of this, Todd, because I like I wasn't really like, you know, like critiquing you. you no, know, no, I know you're right? like, I, I It's know. more the kind of the way this works, right? right? The flip side of this is to think about this from, okay, um, I, um, who's the name of the historian, Haiti historian, why am I forgetting his name, who talks about silences in history? Oh, Truyo. Truyo, right? Yeah. Like, you know, he talks about the different moments in which silence gets created, right, in the archive um, and in creating history. And like, when you look at literature, it's the same in the sense that, like, <laughs> we have these like books that get published and some of them are amazing and never get read. And never make get traction, never make it into the classroom, right? We have like beautiful authors who like, you, you know, and we don't know why, right? Mm -hmm. Or we can make mm -hmm. guesses, right? About publication and money, the economics of the field, about like, you know, in this case, I think her being a black woman writing a mystery novel, like is going to limit like where it went at that time. Mm -hmm. But like, geez, like, man, there's so much great literature out there that like, you know, Crystal, you have to stop beating yourself up because. Yep. It's I don't know, Crystal. I'm with you. I feel like I spent a lot of my 90s reading like Mary Higgins Clark and Sue Grafton, and I wish I'd spent at least some of those hours what's wrong reading with, what's like wrong Barbara Neely, right? You know. What's wrong I know, but I read so many of them, and I feel like I'd wish I'd spent like at least 10 of those hours reading like Barbara Neely. Uh, it's Barbara not your fault because so Mary Higgins Clark and Sue Grafton are, were on every single shelf, and they were uh, they were out there so. I'm just like, why did I read so many of them? Look, and Sue was there. You had to finish the alphabet. Right. You had the A, you had the B, you had the C. But I am with you in, in very much wishing that Blanche yeah. on the Lamb had been a more popular text, yeah. you know, at yeah. the time in culture and had been, you know, people had read it and they made movies about it and she kept writing yeah. more and all that kind of stuff, you know. But well, thank God say, it's like, still here. 
maybe I, I don't know, right? I kind of feel like I understood a lot more of this, maybe reading it now, given like how much I know now about just like the racial landscape of the US, right? Rather than when I was like in the 90s and kind of this immigrant childhood didn't really totally understand. So who knows? Maybe I'm getting more of it now. Than this could have helped you. I would have. That's true. That's true. That's true. I actually think that most mystery novels have some sort of social critique at the they heart do. of them. They do. Yeah. So it's That's... just it, like it depends on like what that social critique is, depending on where the detective is located. Right. Um, but like the Sue Grafton novels, honestly, that was like, no, and I'm being serious. Yeah. Like that was, yeah. they, they started like in this moment when we got a number of different female detectives, the V.I. Warshawski um, detective novels too. Um, I'm missing, like, I can't remember one of them that's on the tip of my brain, but like, so there was basically this feminist surge in detective yeah. fiction that was yeah. about like, what does it mean to be a woman in a man's world? Getting back to Todd's original point about like, right. who was the kind of or detective. Um, right. And so like, you know, what, what does that woman see differently? Um, and, you know, if she's an action hero type, like, what does that look like? Cause Sue Grafton definitely like her, like, I can't remember her name, Kelly Curry, Kyrie. Can't help anyway, I, it's like, again, I'm a, I read all I, of them. I clearly don't remember them. But. I read all of these, all of these, and it's like tip of brain. But so like, I think it's actually like, if you are a mystery reader, clearly I was, right? Like, I mean, it's so clear, right? That I started with um, Sherlock Holmes, went through the Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie stuff with Miss Marple, you know, did Nero Wolf. Uh, Dorothy Sayers with Lord What's His Name, right? Like I read all of those when I was a kid and they all actually have like this angle which is about piercing societal norms mm -hmm. because it's societal norms that hide crime. Right. It's, mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. never about and, like finding right. crime in like, you know, the, the low, you know, whatever, right. In the right. dark spots. It's about like, oh, it's hiding in the castle. Well, and, and crime is the result of social issues or social problems, right? right? Like right. there's right. always some, you know, there's the crime and then there's the thing that underlies it that the, that the story is really about. Right. And I think, you know, but I know we're coming up against time, but you, we got to keep, let me talk about this. I'll talk about it briefly. <laughs> <laughs> but like when I when I teach my black mystery novel class, this is one of the big things that we talk about is that all these black mystery novels are almost always about race, but specifically they're about um, they're about race as a thing which you can see and sometimes cannot see, right? So you know if what what Adriana said is that the mystery novel is about like how we see and how we detect. It's about detection, right? How do we see? How do we well, race is this thing, blackness in particular is this thing, which you cannot always see, which this novel also references, right? With the character who's um, Aunt, uh, Aunt Emmeline's uh, half black sister, sister yeah. who right. nobody can tell the difference between the two of them, right? Like if- Mumsfield apparently. Mumsfield, yes. But if you could tell the difference, well, and how can you tell the difference? Because of how she, the treatment, the right. their relationship, right? Yeah. And the, the other ones, the, the half sister is not nice to him because she doesn't know him. Right. Um, so I think like this is really a place where this kind of genre fiction, like when I teach Afrofuturism or whatever, all these, they're always this sort of social critique, really, um, you know, kind of engaged in very um, sometimes complicated and really interesting ways in which these books engage the the issues of that particular point in time and if those issues are timeless which they happen to be something like race of course happens to be timeless right now um mm -hmm. then they still have um, legitimacy and they're pertinent to our moment so this gets us to gossip right okay. because in fact like what is one of the most effective social tools that we have to pierce social norms to pierce yeah. um like social structures gossip yeah, I was right? thinking and about it, like, it, isn't it Eve Sedgwick who kind of talks about it as like discourse of power for the dispossessed, right? So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. It, we, oh, sorry, I interrupted you, but you should go on. <laughs> no, but you interrupted me with the very perfect quote um, because it very much is, right? Like this is Blanche getting a chance to like build her system of knowledge, mm -hmm. um, which helps her understand how to undermine, how to like, how to actually read the house that she's in. It, it, you know, like she doesn't, I this is there's one part that I really that this makes me think of is at the end when she's having her confrontation with Grace and Grace makes fun of her because she doesn't know the word redundancy. Redundancy, redundant, yeah. Right? And it's the you what you see in that moment is the difference between the kind of knowledge yep. that um, that Blanche 
needs and uses in her life that works for her, that is important to her, and the kind of knowledge that is important to um, Grace, right? And that she would make fun of her because she didn't know this word. You want to say something, Adriana, it looks like. Oh, no, I was oh, just, just read the, the part. I'll yes. say, um, so it's on um, 168. And she says, um, so Grace um, asks about Everett, oh, sorry, Blanche asks Grace where Everett is. And she says, um, a, a very useful if greedy man was Everett, but not a very intelligent man, uh, Grace added with a low chuckle. She tucked her blouse more firmly into her waistband and straightened her skirt. Am I being redundant? She gave Blanche a cold speculative look. Do you know what re a redundancy is? I wonder. Grace grinned a smug derisive grin. Blanche associated Grace's mocking smile with every white person who had ever ridiculed her for what she was and wasn't. For a moment, her mouth went sour with the taste of ignorance. She'd look up redundancy the first chance she got, if she got a chance. In the meantime, she had no intention of letting Grace know that she had struck a nerve. Um, and there's like another point where that happens when she was talking about the word um, blackmail. Do you guys remember that? Oh, I love um, that because she so says- So 108. the word that starts with X. Yeah, know, so she says, oh, can I, sorry. Should I just read it or? Um, yeah, let's go. not read the whole thing because we're kind of coming up against time. Okay. Because but I also I, thought it was funny that she like talks about how instead of blackmail, they should call it white male with the M-A-L-E. <laughs> so that was like pretty funny. So. Yes. <laughs> but these are, I, I think both of these ex examples, again, this is why I love this book so much. Is it just sort of when, when, when Blanche needs to find something out, she can find something out. She is not a dumb person. She's a smart person. She's right. resourceful. She knows what she's doing. She has this whole body of knowledge. And it's that that knowledge is devalued and not considered important by certain people, right? I mean, really, Blanche should be like president of the country, right? right? <laughs> like, because she's that smart. But of course, like so many other people who are at the bottom of the social hierarchy for some reason or another, because they don't make that much money or whatever it is, or some condition of birth, what they know, how they believe, how they act, their their um, you know their practices, their their everything about their life is devalued and thought to be you know throwaway, something that can be disposable. And this shows we see that we see that Grace doesn't she, she disdains her so much that she makes fun of her that she doesn't know a word, not knowing that the reason why Grace's world is about to fall in is because <laughs> of Blanche like doing her out. work right. and and hitting those <laughs> networks and finding out what the real information is. Um, but it also makes me think of like Lisa Delpit, who's an educational scholar, has this like really beautiful critique of all these, like there was like a whole bunch of these like studies done for a while where like, you know, kind of thinking about the vocabulary of like black and working class kids, right? Compared to like white middle-class kids. And she has this like really funny critique of it where she's like, it's one thing to know 10,000 words, but are you actually saying anything, right? So yeah. she sort of talks about how like in faculty meetings, like people use all these fancy words, but actually they're saying nothing, right? So kind of the difference between like knowing words and like having actual knowledge. Mm -hmm. Which I, I is a reason why I love these two examples set next to each other, because the very first one is Blanche thinking to herself, right? She's like, you know, blackmail, you know, I don't like that word. I need a different word that doesn't use black, right? She's like being insistent about like not using black in negative kinds of uh, words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then she's like, well, but I can't remember the other word. It should be called white male. And it, like, that's the resourcefulness <laughs> that I love because it's actually like, this is a word that she knows, but she refuses it. She refuses what it, um, what accompanies it, what's inside right. it. And, and it's, then when it's also an example of improvisation, right? Like mm -hmm. that improvisational moment which is a, a hallmark or a tradition in black culture, sorry. It's okay. And then when, when Grace, you know, weaponizes her lack of knowledge of redundancy, um, you know, what the thing that I love about that moment is um, that like, it's actually also like this weak moment for Blanche. She's like, mm. I'll, I'll look it up if I'm not mm -hmm. dead. She doesn't say that. Right? <laughs> okay. um, well, <laughs> if she got a chance. <laughs> And, and then, um, you know, in uh, a couple of pages, right? Like we see her like basically take that, um, that uh, plank and, um, oh, well, first she- uh, She cold cocks her. She, yeah. Exactly, on the mouth, mm -hmm. right? Right. right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then on the face with the, with the board. And I guess what I'm saying is I think it's deeply symbolic not mm. just, you know, like bodily strategic that mm. she is hitting Grace 
you know, like in that center of arrogance, right? Like yeah. the, the voice and yeah. the weaponization of words. And she's actually like, well, I'm going to have a real weapon. And that, and I think, so maybe this could bring us to the end. Cause I know we're getting out of time, but I love, by the way, I love this conversation, you guys, but anyway, at the very end of the book, we have this even bigger sort of moment of refusal, right? I will, I don't, not going to mm-hmm. take the money not gonna or not gonna take the money in the way that they want me to take the money and i'm not going to be a mammy to mumsfield i'm not going to take care of mumsfield and i'm not going to keep the secret yes. i'm not going to keep the secret right so she actually right. takes the money talks to the reporter yeah mm-hmm. she, but she talks to the reporter and gets the yeah. story out because of what's happened to nate because of right. the, the injustice of these white folks getting away with this because they have money right so i think yeah. that that all you know you're you're slap of the board to the face and the cold cock and all that is like this empowering sort of moment of refusal and of sort of punishing that judgment on her and returning the judgment to this white woman who sees herself as being above the law. All right. And clearly, like the host of the first debate, um, I have no control <laughs> over my panelists, but we're going to wrap it up Excuse now. me. Excuse me. Excuse me. But I must Excuse- respond. I must respond. <laughs> So we're going to hopefully do a quick round of going around and saying what we are listening to, reading, eating, whatever, cooking. So uh, Crystal, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I can start because I'm still reading the book I was reading last time, which was Vanguard by Martha Jones about kind of women's political activism and struggles for the vote. Thank you. Uh, Adriana? I was going to tell you all about the books that I'm reading for the classes that I'm teaching, but that kind of seems like a cop out. So instead, let me say that I have been rewatching Grey's Anatomy starting at season one. um, And I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it watching it this time around, mainly why are there men? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Blanche would agree with you. And, and then the, the second thought would be, why, why are there so many patients that are so angry at the doctors after the doctors have saved their lives? There are so many angry people in Grey's Anatomy. And I'm like, who are you? I've never once thought about yelling at my doctor for doing the wrong procedure. Not once. That's because you're not in a medical drama on TV. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Todd. Um, I, uh, apropos to to this book and our conversation today, I'm reading another, I think it's sort of a mystery crime novel. It's called Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. And it just came out maybe a couple of months ago. So I, um, there's a crime about to happen in the book, dude, in the the main character in the book is a getaway driver. And like, it's awesome. You're always so current, Todd. You're always so on top of the motion. Not really. Like whatever, you know, like whenever you talk to the creative writers in your department, they start rattling off all these books. And I'll be like, I never even heard of those people. (laughs) I'm just like, I'm always looking for stuff that I like. And this is something that came up on my radar. I've never heard of this writer before, but, um, you know, I think he's written a few other things. And, and I thought I'll give this book a shot and it's really good so far. I can't put it down. So. And if I could do one more plug, this is a plug for a um, a television series. It's called P Valley. Have you guys heard of this show? So this is a show that's set in a strip club, I think in Georgia, and it's on Stars. It. And it's based on um, I can't remember the name of the playwright right now, but it's based on a play um, by uh, a female play, black female playwright. And so she's the showrunner. I can't remember her name right now. So if you'll have to forgive me. We'll put it on the link. But it's like, it's, it's, there's a lot of people that don't like it. There's actually a lot of black people that don't like it because they're like, this is a very undignified portrait of black people. But, you know, again, Tori Hall. That's her. Yeah. So, but I love it. And there's a character in it called Uncle Clifford who owns the, uh, owns the strip club. And Uncle Clifford is the greatest character ever. So you guys just gotta check it out. I really like it. It's 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 trashy. It's a little trashy, you know. It's a little pulpy, a little bit, and all that kind of stuff. We were Is just it talking like the about. new Empire? It's way better than Empire. I miss I opinion. miss season one Empire. That was the Empire. I you know I kind of lost it on Empire after a while. I know we're getting to a whole nother conversation now. All right, go. thank you, Todd. Just, just check out <laughs> P Valley. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. So my shout out quickly is to the September 16th. I'm sorry, we don't have time. I'm sorry. (laughs) To the uh, 
September 16th episode of Throughline, which talks about James Baldwin and they interview mm -hmm. Eddie Glott, which whose book uh, Begin Again that Todd has given a shout out to. But it's just like a beautiful interview and he gets like super emotional talking about James Baldwin. So just check it out. It's pretty cool. All right. So our next book is actually not going to be a book just because what? we figured with stuff coming up, you know, next month might be a little hard. So we're going to actually talk about a Netflix movie called The 40-Year-Old Version, which is uh, written and directed by Radha Blank. Uh, Todd and I watched it and we really thought it was really beautiful and fun. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in a month. So everybody go watch it. Watch it a couple of times. It's really good. And All y'all that um, say you can't keep up with this, you can keep up with this. There you go. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you should watch it just because it's a great movie anyway. So we'll be back at you in about a month. Uh, but as uh, Adriana said at the beginning, uh, you know, keep wearing those masks, keep those six feet away, keep uh, washing your hands and all that good stuff. Go and vote. As always. And vote if you haven't. Um, and also, everybody, please stop harassing us because we have voted. Uh <laughs> and don't harass anyone who's in line to vote either. Seriously. And also, we shouldn't have those lines to begin with. But, you oh, know, man. America 2020. So yes, find us on all the things and we'll see you. We'll see you, talk to you soon. Bye y'all. Bye. Oh my God, people. <laughs> <laughs>You've been listening to another episode of The Drip recorded remotely from St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Northfield, Minnesota, and Washington, D.C. The show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikator, Adriana Estel, Crystal Moten, and Todd Lawrence, the All Spoilers Collective. There are only three days left until the election, so do what you gotta do, y'all. Drop off those ballots, vote early in person, or vote on election day. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I do know that we will be back next month to talk about the Netflix movie, 40-year-old version. Check it out. We'll see you in November. Bye.